close. It'll get you close. Yeah. We'll, we'll Dialogue close is enough. super forgiving compared to music. <laughs> and indeed it is. Yeah. Um, dude, thanks so much for, for joining us on this, uh, on this podcast. Really appreciate you lending some time. Oh yeah. No, I'm excited to, uh, to see what we're going to talk about. Yeah, man. We both uh, really enjoyed the chat you had on Carry the Fire with Dustin Kenzeru and uh, right. was what led us to, to you. Awesome. Well, I'm so yeah. glad that that podcast, uh, you know, bore some fruit. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we both today watched your uh, your recent debate with uh, that fellow Professor Holloway. Okay. As well. Okay. All right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that was, um, I have to commend you for, uh, for playing it as cool as you did. Cause there were <laughs> not that he seems like a perfectly nice person. It's not oh, to say Carson's that he's a great person. Yeah. yeah. But no, there but were the a questions couple things where I was skin. like, yeah, there was like, there's a lot of holes and we were just sort of right before you joined, we were just talking about how he, he started off his 20 minutes with talking about the, the importance of loving thy neighbor yeah. And I was like, how, what? Yeah. <laughs> how yeah, the fuck yeah. are you going to say, uh, love thy neighbor is like a central tenant and then also be like, vote for Trump for president. They just yeah. don't connect. No, absolutely. Anyways, I don't want to get too deep into that, but, um, I no, did no enjoy worries. that, that chat Great. that you guys had. Yeah, man. So I guess where we'd like to start is maybe just kind of getting your, your background and, um, sure. you know, in Catholicism and, and growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was born in Brownsville, Texas. Um, I don't know geographically if that's, uh, as, um, as clear to you. Uh, if you follow the Texas all the way down on the tip to the yeah. Gulf of Mexico, it's, uh, it's right down where the Rio Grande river empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. Sure. So, so it's well, uh, actually super before south. we get, before we get to that, I just yeah. want to give the listeners sort of like a an endpoint of sort of who you are right now, which oh, is right on. Sure. you're a professor uh, in Vancouver, right? And so, what are you? What it, what is your PhD in, and, and what do you teach currently? Yeah, so I'm uh, an associate professor in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Um, my PhD is in philosophy of education. So I teach in a department where there are historians, philosophers, sociologists, cultural studies, the whole nine yards who all have a common object of study, which is education. Um, yeah. and so, um, yeah, so my, my specialization is in philosophy of education and, um, I've been here now for, this is going in my seventh year, uh, right now. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And, well, from there we can we can draw the line from from Brownsville to how you got to where you are now. Yeah, I mean geographically it's a long ways. Um, <laughs> sure, but uh, and hopefully yeah. spiritually too. Oh yeah, gosh, there's okay, uh, that's what we're most interested in. Yeah, so you know if we go behind that, actually, it might be useful. In the 1970s. Um, my dad. Uh, is, so Brownsville is in an area called the Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. Um, RGV and, um, my dad is from there as well. And he was, uh, uh, 
a heroin addict and drug dealer um, in the 70s who had a major uh, religious conversion um, in 1978 um, through the charismatic renewal movement, which is kind of a species of Pentecostalism that came into the Catholic Church. And so that is... um, uh, that entered his life in 78, and he has one of those genuinely kind of blockbuster testimonies of, you know, uh, you know, kind of like a Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus kind of story. Sure. And so Two he just, lives. yeah, exactly. So he, he shared that story and really he, he's, uh, um, he became an evangelist, um, from there and met my mom on the road. Um, and they got married and planned to be missionaries. The, uh, the kind of medical outlook for him, considering his uh, decade of, of, of drug abuse, was pretty bleak in terms of children. But I was born in 82. So, that's, so he was in Brownsville, stationed at a parish called uh, Good Shepherd. Um, that was the pastor was the priest, in fact, Father John O'Malley uh, from from Dublin, obviously, um, who uh, was his, uh, was the person instrumental in his conversion in '78. So I was kind of born into uh, a full time ministry and raised in a lay missionary Catholic family. Sure, that and a really like interesting one too, because it's not it's a sh- it's a short lineage, right? So you have this this father who's like on fire for yeah. ministry because yeah. it's so it's so new. Yeah, totally. So, you know, um it's interesting there because there, it it's so because of the kind of so my dad was raised in a very in a very um uh he was raised in in a, in a in a very kind of typical Mexican American Catholic family. Um, especially typical of that time. And so there w- there's a way in which the ethnic heritage of Catholicism uh-huh. sort of endured and made that conversion point probably a little bit less dramatic. But it also meant that like our time in the charismatic renewal was pretty – it was kind of a two-world experience where you had sort of the charismatic renewal movement – Primarily of kind of an of an Anglophone English speaking American cultural environment, and then you had the Renovación Cristiana, which was more of that kind of Mexican side. And and since obviously Brownsville is right across the the river from Matamoros, Mexico, that mm-hmm. borderlands vibe um, makes this pretty pretty complicated. <laughs> um, sure. So, um, so, so you do have all that kind of zeal and, er, and, and, um, and, uh, and kind of religious fervor. And on the other hand, like your grandparents and your extended family, everyone's Catholic anyway, you might say. And sure. so, so there's, um, and that of course creates degrees of piety. So are we the real religious Catholics and they're just kind of <laughs> pew sitters you know and then you know you get some of that stuff but yeah uh, is pew sitters the catholic version of a mouth breather uh, tell me about mouth breeders i don't know the (laughs) no that was just a quick that was a shitty one-liner but oh okay uh, yeah yeah. the the one thing that comes out to is um my experience and i have compared notes with people who use this um and other uh um denominational environments, I definitely had a PK experience, right? So I was a preacher's kid. Um, sure. And, um, and so, yeah, I was, um, I was raised in that. I came to, um, 
really kind of, I mean, what I talked about on the, on the other podcast is that, you know, the, the reading of scripture and the learning to study and hit the books and stuff was a kind of uniquely religious aspect. Um, the Catholic intellectual tradition has its kind of thing there. Um, and then on the other hand, um, uh, and that includes liturgy and scripture and all kinds of stuff. But then on the other hand, music, um, is also something that, that kind of, uh, was really important, uh, for, 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 well, for, for charismatic praise and worship, you know, so it sure, was a very sure. kind of, uh, so I, so I kind of grew up with a book in one hand and a guitar in the other and moving all the time. I think I matriculated through about 13 different schools from kindergarten to grad studies. Um, sure. Do you and, remember a time at like a, like as a early kid, like I would say like before eight years old or 10 years old having like an intense God experience um, or was it really just sort of like, you know, it's just as a kid, you just, you're, you just take what you know, right? So if you're growing up in the church, you're a pastor's kid, like whatever your reality is, like you just accept it because you don't know any, anything different. Um, but I'm curious if you ever had a moment where you're like, wow, this is really, uh, and obviously you, at, at that young age, you can't put it into words. You can't intellectualize it, but you can feel it deeply. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you had that at like, uh, at any point bouncing around like you did. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, a f- I was an earnest child. Like I was a kind of a religious creature. Like I don't really have a lot of authentic memory that, I think it's one of the reasons why even my attempts at skepticism, like I don't have an atheist intuition in my psyche at all. And I think a lot of that's just the fact that like, you know, I was a pretty earnest believer from the time my memory starts forming. And then I do remember having the sort of maybe standard religious doubts, kind of those kind of quiet moments in your bed of, you know, is God real or that stuff. And I, I think I at least behaviorally experienced those doubts kind of as a kind of prayer, kind of like seeking God in the midst of kind of doubts. And I definitely had several moments where the I felt that there was a kind of subjective response, you know, out there somewhere to, to me, even as mm-hmm. a child. Um, and so, you know, I... Um, uh, you could say that my formation was just so religious that there wasn't a lot of room, uh, sure, psychologically to. Uh, but you to also have didn't. Much. You didn't like the standard PK story is uh, usually includes some form of backlash. Yeah, right? and, and yeah, you yeah. didn't really have that. Not really. I mean, so I went to a uh, a, a kind of a. I kind of went to like the the Liberty university for conservative Catholics. So I like went to this super Catholic, uh, charismatic institution and I had my kind of, you know, let your hair down and party. But in some sense, because of the, uh, I mean, Catholicism, like gambling and drinking and stuff, like we're pretty loose on, on behaviorally on a lot of things. So there are certain vices that seem to be pretty okay. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's definitely not as rigid as some of the other religions when it comes down to that stuff. But I'm curious if, uh, you know, growing up, kind of knowing your dad's story, were you really Mm -hmm. scared of, of things like drugs and alcohol growing up? I think I, I mean, it wasn't so much a, 
I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was. So like, like in high school when all the cool kids were smoking, um, you know, which is weird because my dad actually smoked, like he still smokes to this day. But like th- th- there was a kind of a, a, a weird relationship to some of that. I think I often used my dad probably more as an excuse for just being kind of a wimp myself and not <laughs> wanting to kind of get into trouble. In many sure. cases, I think I kind of gamed the story sometimes to be like, oh, it'd be fine with me, but you know, my dad. So, you know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> sure, sure. And people would be like, whoa, your dad was like literally a drug addict. So we'll back off Rocha, you know, that kind of a <laughs> right. thing. Uh, to me, no, it's, you know, for me, um, I, my PK experience was, was, was less about that kind of existential, rebelling against the father and more about growing into my early twenties and seeing the real cracks in, in the reality that you had built to that point and, and having a really difficult time reconciling the cracks with really no exit options immediately available. And so that was probably for me, the closest thing to a rebellion was just in my early twenties and the early stages of our marriage, seeing that the, um, the, the what what seemed to be a fortress of faith um, had had a leaky roof and had you know sure uh, and um, I, I mean it's in some sense that's pretty generic like obviously humans are imperfect and that stuff happens but it was sure. shocking for me at the time you know but there's also something beautiful in that I mean Leonard Cohen has that famous song where he talks sure. about you know the the cracks that's how the light gets in. Um, and I think that even the Bible references, um, you know, the, the importance of doubt in the sense that, like, there there needs to be some mystery. Uh, there needs to be some unknowing. Otherwise, it's it loses some of its beauty and shine. Um, and so it's a it's a matter of being comfortable with with the mystery and, and what you can't know. And, and I think that's actually probably for me a, a bigger, um, so there were kind of two things. One was a, a wider awareness to the reality of God as, as mystery and the kind of the hiddenness of God as a part of the reality of, of God in my, in my, that was huge. Um, in the charismatic renewal, it's all about signs and wonders. Like it's all about the presence, the immediate, the the kind of right in front of you presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so, the ability to take a step back and find it almost like a like a more of a like a negative theology where 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 absence is is in some sense a kind of a manifestation of the divine, but you can't see it. You can only trace it. That kind of stuff. That really helped me. But then the biggest thing was the fact that like. You know, going back to like the excesses of college, we had like a sinner's mass where like everyone would, would it'd be at 7 p.m. And so you show up for confession and you go to confession real fast so that you can get go to mass and you can receive communion and kind of reset your week and then go off and have a crazy week again. And kind of this, <laughs> there was this kind of like cycle that was pretty, it's probably the worst, the most deserved worst reputation of Catholics playing itself out. And I I think that for me, one of the things that really reset my buttons spiritually was the idea of holiness as the goal of the Christian life, as opposed to uh, having a really great insurance policy for the Mm -hmm. afterlife. Right. And and for me, that that really shifted things. That's sort of the like uh, fifth graders armchair uh, theory on Christianity is like, well, if I can just be forgiven for what I do, 
then I should just do whatever I want and then ask for forgiveness when it's done. Um, but that does seem to play itself out in, in a lot of people's lives. Um, totally not. Yeah. yeah. And it's super immature. I think in terms of, I mean, you could think about in very secular analogies to, you know, one's relationship to one's parents and the degree to which one is seeking sort of happiness and fulfillment as opposed to their kind of immediate satisfaction or approval or like, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. in some sense, it's a very natural thing, um, but it wasn't something that I that I really processed until, you know, like my early my early 20s up to that point, you know, I was kind of on autopilot, you might say. Uh, yeah. yeah. How comfortable were you with something like confession? You know, just jumping in the booth one on one with the, oh. the priest and burying I mean, your soul the, like the, that. Yeah. I mean, to the, again, you're, you're talking to, to a cradle Catholic. So we're, um, you know, I've got generations of ancestry of people doing this. It's, um, uh, in fact, I find, no, I, I actually, so the one thing to know about the sacrament of confession that is that Catholics don't do a good job of telling people about, that it actually begins before you go in the booth, you have to this examination of conscience. And the examination of conscience to me is one of the most powerful uh, spiritual routines because you essentially look at yourself looking at yourself in a way. It's a form of kind of introspection and auto-reflection. And you're, of course, not looking for the best parts of yourself. You're looking for your sin and for your failings and for, you know. And the ability, I think, to, to, to make a good confession is completely built on, not so much on your confessional experience, but it, for me, at least, it's built on your capacity for an, a proper examination of conscience, right? Um, yeah. And Similar to like a therapy session. Oh, like it's, man. It's all yeah. really built upon like yeah. the work that you put into it and like what you are actually bringing to the table because that therapist isn't there to necessarily fix you. They're just there to, to help guide that experience. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we have a kind of a sacramental um, uh, theology around the, the priest being there as a kind of stand in for Christ. Which I know sounds really spooky and crazy, but if you but if you think about it in a more intimate way, it's an opportunity to simulate a kind of talking method with like Christ the therapist in a way. Sure. Where if you do the work beforehand on your conscience and you go inside and you find the you know, the Christ inside of you, then I think that there can be a lot of power there. And the other thing I like about confession is that Catholics like I don't want to, I'm going to scandalize some people in my own church as I explain it, but it, we, have this, we have this idea called temporal punishment that I think is super important. And I think Catholics actually forget a lot, which is if I go to a confessional and I examine my conscience and I remember that last week I just like casually uh, uh, ran over somebody and killed them, I, I can go into the confessional and I can confess this before the priest in persona Christi and be forgiven. Like my soul is clean. And then I have to go to the courthouse and turn myself in. And then I have to t accept my sentence and go to yeah. jail. In other words, the, 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 the idea worldly consequences are ex still there. Exactly. Exactly. So there's nothing about confession that absolves me of my temporal duties to my brother and my sister. And I think that's super important as well. Otherwise confession really is more than just therapy. It becomes this kind of like exceptional spot for humans to not take responsibility for right. their lives. It's just like a, it's a get out of jail free card. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I'm curious, I feel like this is a good segue 
Um, you know, Dan and I both grew up religious, Dan in the Catholic church, me in sort of like a normal non-denominational, I wouldn't say normal, but <laughs> I was going to uh, give you crap about that. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> not, should, you should. Not normal, very much not normal, actually. Yeah. A non-denominational, like mega church, like evangelical Christian sure, church. Sure, sure, Um, and neither of us are Christian today, but we're both still like spiritual very mm-hmm. much and, and really like, you know, uh, dig what Jesus taught. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective, uh, as someone who's just like, um, you know, so learned and um, has spent so much time diving into this, you know, Catholicism or, or the word Catholic is its roots essentially mean like universal, mm-hmm. right? Catologos, in the Greek yeah. terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious what your like to folks that are not religious at all yeah. or maybe a different religion, like what do you take from Catholicism that you think are should just be universally applied across the board, like spiritual terms. Hmm. Um, and so that means, you know, essentially removing any, like, all religious notions from it, um, but just, like, really basic spiritual practices that you take from, from Catholicism that you think that people could apply to their lives that would, that would help them and, and make them better. Yeah, um... This is an awesome question, um, mainly because my so Chris, Chris, I'm going to use Christianity with a big C, just to be kind of as historically broad as I can be. Sure, um, and I'm fine with that too. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, the one of one of the most potentially scandalous, but also most true from the empirical record. And, and facts and history all the way to, I think the, the deeper meaning and significance is that Christianity is not built on explicitly Christian. There is no, there's no like Christianity is not sui generis. It doesn't just come from itself. We come first and foremost out of Judaism. Um, the mm-hmm. old Testament is the Torah. It's, it's, it's the prophets, it's the laws, it's the wisdom and books. Arguably Judaism did not just come from nothing either. And, and Judaism itself, you know, whenever you read it really closely and in, in a historical critical way, you figure out that kind of monotheism is a late arrival in a lot of that book. And like, you know, I, I think there's, there's room to universalize it and, and the way we're doing here. Uh, but to me, the, the other kind of, um, base for Christianity, uh, beyond its sort of Hebrew origins is, um, Hellenistic thought and primarily Greek philosophy. Um, now you can do the same thing to Plato. He didn't just come up with the immortality of the soul one day walking around in Athens. Um, it's obviously this confluence of at least ideas going from, you know, the Indus Valley all the way to, you know, Mesopotamia and, and, you know, it's kind of Afro-Eurasian and it's sort of geographic, uh, location. But to me, what's so exciting about this is that um, the universalism of, let's say, Paul, woman or, or, or man, Gentile or Jew, servant or free, no more, right? The abolition of difference in Paul. T- to me, that's actually, to me, actually feasible, not only through the covenants uh, between God and Israel, but more expansively, I would say, through the radical ideas that we take from the Greeks. In particular, I would say the immortality of the soul. I mean, this idea to me is just as consequential an idea that, that one can kind of take up and look at. And I think that the, the, um, the idea that, there, that, that to be a person entails 
ensoulment or having a soul and a soul that doesn't necessarily go the way of the body. This opens us into concepts of mind, of, of spirit, geist, uh, uh, you know, of all these things that if we take ourselves all the way to the simple practice of the examination of conscience, the person without a soul has no conscience to examine and no tools with which to examine their con- There is no inside, you might say. And so to me, like the, the Christian take-up of Plato, of the immortality of the soul, that leads to this deep sense of interiority within the human person that can be explored um, like this kind of empty room. I mean, in Augustine, he says, my inner, my, uh, my inner self is a house divided against itself, where then on the inside mm-hmm. there can even be conflict and stuff. I mean, to me, this is just the most exciting thing, in my opinion, um, that human beings uh, use to construct our very sense of what it means to be human. Uh, and to me, this is as universal as, as ever. And, I, and I'm kind of... Um, it's something I think I'm really partisan to is this sort of anthropology of Catholicism, this idea of what it means sure. to be human or the anthropos, which of course is not, I would never claim, unique to Christianity. It's something we can trace across the Abrahamic traditions and even into the sort of pre-Christian, we would we use the word lowercase p, pagan, but we don't mean it in an insulting way. The, sure. You know, and... Um, And so for me, when I teach like as a philosopher, as you can see, I can get pretty much as worked up and as you might say religious, just an affect, teaching Plato's idea of anamnesis, that all learning is but recollection. And how do you recall? Through the soul. And what the hell is that? Like I can get as juiced about that as I could get about sharing like, you know, the gospels with someone. Sure. In some sense, maybe I get more, which is maybe a problem. But um, that that to me, that teaching of the immortality of the soul, which allows for these practices of just self-reflection, um, like there's no reflection of a self. There's no self. There's none of that prime matter to work with. There's no psychology. There's no mind. There's no, you know, all of these basic uh, things aren't, within our at least vocabulary or we don't have the concepts for them um and and of course one question is like to what extent are these natural within like things like humans and to what extent are these like the inventions we've created to to kind of create the human as a kind of artifice uh-huh. and that's cool and it raises other questions like freedom and determinism um and i love that too but uh for me this is kind of um maybe at times when i'm not maybe as religiously inclined it keeps me pretty stinking Catholic because uh, because I don't actually have to swim through my tradition on explicitly sacred terms. We have a very vast secular archive that goes along with our sacred sure. texts, right? But all those things that you were just referencing to get, I guess, a little more granular and yeah. specific, like how do we reconcile um, yeah, this notion of, a, of an animated soul within us? against um current tribalism that still exists and it still has its claws so deeply embedded in our society today especially right now with the election coming up um and like you're saying like paul you know teaching against like hey like we we should all be in this together gentile jew like yeah. Although in Acts, Paul does, he is against the Jews from Asia. He does <laughs> not like the right. Jews from Asia. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah anyways we've been going through the bible on the side yeah but, yeah no, um, it's his confrontation with peter actually he um uh peter thinks christians should just be sort of jews and paul's like no <laughs> right but I'm, I'm just curious like how does um yeah i mean i guess the root of christianity which is jesus's teachings which was you know he was so inclusive right radically inclusive especially mm-hmm. for his time and even in today's time 2000 years later like how does how do those things apply in a universal context to try to help people like especially non-religious people and i would say a spe- you know specifically those on the left which i i am on the left and dan is as well mm-hmm. but I do find that uh, I have a lot of friends that like the the amount of hatred that they harbor mm. for anybody who would say anything you know positive about Trump, which I, I struggle with this myself. Mm. You know, like there's still a tribalism within me that wants to be like, "Fuck you! You mm-hmm. support that monster!" Like, yeah. How do how do we try to like, you know, parse out these like deeper spiritual teachings into? Um, trying to erase some of this intense tribalism that we have, like, kind of baked into our biology. Sure. I mean, one of the great tragedies and ironies, perhaps, of of Christianity, Catholicism, religion in general, is that, like, for all of its massive anthropology, it still produces an enormous amount of conflict and war and death and violence and suffering. Um, and I don't want to be cavalier about that at all. At the same time, I would say that, you know, in the more granular sense you're talking about, I think you can actually, um, so I'm thinking here of something very concrete. So whenever the Spanish came to the, you know, so-called new world, there was, um, uh, one of the first things they immediately did is they, they enslaved, uh, indigenous people. So they didn't just take their land. They also put many of them under, um, colonial slavery, and there was a particular um, friar, Bartolomé de las Casas, who um, he he wrote to the to the king and queen in Spain and said, "This is wrong, because the 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 indígenas of the Caribbean and of the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, they're, they're persons just like us." And he made an argument for their personhood, and the personhood was an argument for their ensoulment as ensouled beings like we are. And he used the Greeks for this. He used Aristotle, uh, and and he was a, a Dominican, so he was a Thomist. He was a reader of mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas. Um, now, you could say, like, why didn't Christianity work so that they didn't enslave people to begin with? That, that's one question, and it's a good question to ask. At the same time, within the tragedy of the objectification of human beings, the depersonalization of human beings, the ability, even with our political adversaries, to, um, to forget or to willfully ignore their personhood— this is where, to me, a, a doctrine like the immortality of the soul is super inconvenient because Trump has a soul and Trump is a person. And I, right. I, this doesn't mean by any means that I, well, it certainly doesn't mean that I'm voting for him, but far more than that, I don't have to like him. There's a lot of things that I don't have to do, but one of the kind of things I'm not permitted to do is to objectify him and out of this, we get a, an interesting almost theory of, of oppression where the people who oppress, we want perhaps to oppress them back. 
But if we do that, right. we actually lower ourselves morally, you could say, to their level. Whenever the only kind of true thing to do to the to the unvirtuous person is, in fact, to remind them and ourselves of their of our common personhood as persons and call them to be human in a way. Um, and this sure. is really difficult, but I think that there's a matrix of um, of relations where the soul is like super important for an ethics or for a moral relationship to others, especially those whom we are are different from whether it's culturally cultural differences or if it's even like you know um moral monsters you know and i think it's challenging to think of things that like wow hitler was actually a person right right yeah you know? it's hard to lead it's definitely you know hard to lead with compassion for those folks that you don't understand but it's definitely just perpetuates the same circle if you never try to find some common understanding or just understand that those people just need a hug and need mm-hmm. need love and acceptance and that's yeah. not not getting those things yeah. is probably what they what got well, them to a place of sure. such hate and some of them probably need lots of temporal punishment <laughs> Like, you know, (laughs) I'm not like, again, I'm Catholic. So like, I'm not, I'm not saying they get out of jail free, but the, the, the fact, the fact that everyone with the soul has a capacity for redemption, that there's no one who we encounter who is a person for whom we're permitted to make the decision that they are beyond the, uh, the, the, the line of, of a potential redemption with, with heaps and loads of temporal punishment. Right. <laughs> but, but that sure. nonetheless, that, 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 that's not a, a live option for every person who, who is, who is a human being. And by the way, I would say, open it up even further, uh, learning how to interact with non-human persons, perhaps who still carry the shadow of God or the image of God or a kind of uh, and In other words, panentheism, which is not quite pantheism. Pantheism is sure. everything is a God. Panentheism is that God is in everything. Right. Right. And this is a very kind of classic Franciscan scholastic idea. Um, but it's, it's, it, to me, it's the doctrine of the soul on steroids. So then all of a sudden I can't de I can't objectify, you know, uh, uh, right. people, but I also can't just, you know, objectify creation either because God is in that too. And so then all of a sudden I'm confronted. If something is living and breathing, then God is in it. Exactly. That's not to say that Trump isn't or whatever political leader or our neighbor or whatever isn't committing atrocities that maybe need to be addressed. But we have to also recognize that like there is that, there is that seed in them. Um, While we're sort of on the top of, topic of politics and and this is not to uh to put you on blast in any way no, but no, no. i am curious to sort of um you know i'd like to sort of try to bridge this gap between um this is largely coming from the the debate that we watched but mm-hmm. um try to bridge the gap between folks that are pro-life and pro-choice sure um and i guess i'm just i'm sort of fascinated with christianity's obsession with abortion Mm -hmm. um for instance in that debate like someone brings up someone gave you a question of like you know abortion kills it was a it was very like rhetorical like sensationalistic a million dollar a million people a year Mm -hmm. so you know what other issue can matter more and it's like well what about all of the things that kill tens of millions of people a hundred million people a year Mm -hmm. like who are actually existing in the world 
Um, and that's not to that's not to um, you know say that a, a abortion is is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want an abortion clinic on on every corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that like we women should have a choice to to do that if if they want. And I do think that if we you know put other programs in place, then we can just reduce that rate down. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I'm curious from your perspective, from like you know, someone who's clearly very educated and intelligent um, versus, like, someone who's sort of just, like, uh, you know, an armchair Christian who's like, yeah, I'm just, I go with the party line and, like, I'm a, I'm pro-life. Like, I, I'm just wondering if you can sort of paint some, some context around, like, what do you think is this obsession with, I mean, I understand the sanctity of life, but why such a focus on abortion as opposed to all of the actual living people who are suffering in the world. Sure, 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 uh, sure. Especially in America. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that was going to be my first proviso is, um, so like I live in Canada um, and you'll see that like political debate is not a zero sum game around abortion in Canada to the extent that it is in the U S and to the extent that it does exist in Canada, it's an, it's an import from the U S. Um, and so, you know, um, the history of Roe v. Wade and the history of how abortion became a fundamental plank for the Republican Party, trying to recover basically from the um, the sixties, um, uh, is is its own story. The Southern strategy, all that stuff, like that. So I think there's kind of like a secular political question, which is how did the Christian right emerge as on the right? and Christian and use abortion as its kind of banner issue and build such a strong network uh, interdenominationally amongst Christians to kind of push that forward. Um, That's its own question. You'll recall, of course, that just before that with Kennedy, you know, Catholics were pretty partisanly Democrat. Um, And and in particular, whenever you think about the kind of – economic classes of Catholic immigrant waves, whether it was Germans or Poles or Italians or, or, or Mexicans like me or whatever, you know, um, our politics was probably much more aligned with a kind of labor post new deal Democrat, um, sure. idea. So I think there's like a secular political question here. That's probably the easiest way to answer the question, but, but, but you will. Right. But also, and also very complicated too. I mean, it mm-hmm. just, it, yeah, like you said, it goes back decades and decades. I guess what I'm actually more interested in, and I think most people are probably wrapped up in, in the political side of it, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in, like, are there strong theological, biblical underpinnings to the belief that abortion is, like, completely unsanctified? Sure. Yeah, I think this is a better question, and, and I wanted to kind of pivot away from the political to the, to this moral question. Um, I love that uh, verse from Jeremiah of uh, before the womb I formed you, <laughs> uh, because if we take that as a sort of biblical clue, conception isn't early enough <laughs> sure. for, for life to exist. But it also uh, shows us that the, um, the relation between creator and created um, is not necessarily the rather simple version we read in the sort of Genesis account where it's kind of like poof kind of a thing. My my concern is that a lot of the, um, 
a lot of the metaphysical assumptions of religious people with respect to abortion are um, failures to quite comprehend um, this whole business about installment and personhood. Like, this is really difficult stuff. And if you look at the church's teaching on it, Aquinas, for instance, in the, in the Middle Ages, actually taught that installment didn't happen until the, 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 the person passed through a sort of vegetative phase and stuff. When you read Augustine, you'll see that he basically hated babies and toddlers. And so, like, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot I would of, say that America's obsession with abortion is because they love babies for whatever fucking reason. Like, they're obsessed <laughs> with babies, and so therefore they're like, do not abort them. Yeah. And then as soon as they, like, turn into five-year-olds, and they're like, fucking put them in cages, yeah. I don't it's care. Like people, yeah, it's like people getting puppies and then dropping them off at the park when they grow up kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that. I do think, though, that, that the... Um, I think that life... There's a kind of vitalism that is enshrined within Christianity. Uh, there's um, so Catholics, we have this thing called Catholic morbidity, which is sort of like a death obsession. Uh, we have a kind of a kind of a gory relationship to even Christ's passion, and Mel Gibson really kind of went really went for it there. But I mean, even <laughs> as when, he does, as he does. Um, uh, <laughs> But, you know, we have a bunch of really, you know, uh, we like to keep body parts and all kinds of stuff like that. Sure. But sure. as much as there is this kind of Catholic morbidity, there is this kind of vitalism where I think one of the um, one of the one of one of the implications of the Pauline abolition of difference is kind of like a every life matters equally kind of idea. Whereas in the Old Testament, you, we, we get like the um, uh, imprecatory psalms where it's like, crush my enemies and kill all my foes and let them have no children. And like, you know, there's this ability to kind of strike out against the other uh, and only protect, you know, one's own. Whereas after the New Testament, I think that's kind of changed. Now, we do find like in Acts where, you know... Uh, I mean, God isn't necessarily a pacifist in the New Testament. We, you know, in Acts, we have the couple who withholds some tithe and they get kind of turned into dust or something. And, you know, um, Herod and, you know, a couple other things here and there. But I do think there is this value of life that's probably um, unique in the kind of uh, cultural world. Um, and that. In, in, in other words, a lot of the stuff I was talking about before about the value of persons and installment, I think that's sort of that's the same moral baggage you carry into a question of abortion. So, like for me, I like the way the European Union tends to talk with respect to abortion, which is largely around viability uh, criteria. So, if if uh, if a fetus is viable outside of the womb, then that seems to make it a different kind of an entity. Uh, who is that cannot be made eligible uh, to be aborted versus a fetus that is not viable outside of the womb. That's that tends to be where a lot of, for instance, um, term uh, uh, limits and laws. And when you look at abortion laws in, in, in Europe, they're often regulated according to this kind of viability criteria. Um, I still think that's a pretty Christian, a pretty kind of Judeo-Christian sense of the human person, but it doesn't have necessarily the standoff politi uh, politicization that we see in the United States. Um, sure. And it's also out of step with what the Vatican teaches, because the church, interestingly, long before the U.S., um, people always forget Stalin made abortion uh, illegal. 
and Russia from, uh, what was it, like 47 to 53 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, so we had the gulag and illegal abortion at the same exact time in, in totalitarian Soviet communism uh, side by side. Uh, the Bolsheviks made it um, legal. In fact, um, feminists, uh, Bolshevik feminists primarily. Um, and so like abortion isn't necessarily just like uh, and, and of course, this is a deeply Russian Orthodox society. So it's not that it was outside of the co- sort of uh, religious cultural expression. All I'm trying to say here is that like there's probably more sociological and religious variety to the way we think of abortion. But to the church's position, the church has increasingly, especially in the modern age, um, been opposed to it as a kind of, uh, and euthanasia as well, as a kind of be really careful with these moments in the human uh, cycle, because if we get too loose with them, we're going to lose everything in the middle kind of a thing. Sure. And and I can respect that. But I also think that there's, uh, I mean, Roe v. Wade is almost 50 years old. Yeah. Right. 73. And the fact that our... Our political sphere is still saying, like, let's try to overturn it when the majority of Americans are saying this should just be a woman's choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of all of the religious and moral things aside, like, sure, it seems like uh, reality has decided it's going to be what it's going to be. And you're fighting a very, very uh, silly uphill battle. Not you. No, no, particularly, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just. Yeah. Yeah, the the far right is, and I guess I'm curious, like why, uh, why so much focus on just that when there are all of these other things when it comes to the sanctity of life here on Earth. Um, there are all of these other things that are like super, super important, um, and you know things that are are killing people in much larger numbers than oh, yeah. abortion is. Um, if you, you know, and ultimately abortion comes down to, um, you know, a lot of people on the, on the pro-choice side would say, well, I don't consider it a life, Mm -hmm. uh, if it's aborted early term or whatever. Yeah. So, but I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's difficult. Like, you know, we live here in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, I drive by an abortion clinic fairly regularly that's it's only one of a few in portland that like i would drive by regularly it always has people protesting outside Mm -hmm. um and obviously portland is a very liberal city sure and i think that those people are obviously protesting for something that they deeply believe i mean they really really believe that like they are upholding the sanctity of life so yeah. it's not like I'm going to drive by them and throw a tomato at them and be like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, I know that they really, really believe in it. I disagree with them, but I know that they re- like there's but I, I think where the conversation gets so difficult is it's like if I were to approach one of them and say, like, can we have a measured conversation around this? There actually is no middle ground for us to meet. And I'm cur- with someone like you mm-hmm. um, and I. You know, I feel like wh- what would the middle ground be that where we could try to like um, try to bridge this gap so it's not so we don't have single issue voters anymore. Sure. So that sure. this isn't such a hot button issue. Yeah. And and also just like I do think that there's something juicy in just even as a religious person saying like 
my nation, the nation that I live in has accepted this specific reality. Mm-hmm. It's unchangeable. What else can we focus on to uphold the sanctity of life? Sure. Um, and, and like pivoting the conversation or if that's even possible. I mean, I think within like a comment, like within like a sort of, um, public discourse, this is going to be really hard in the American, uh, context because, we're not really talking about I- ideas. We're really getting into ideology. Um, so, for instance, like to me, what abortion, the word refers to is to um, terminating a pregnancy as opposed to allowing it to come to full term and result in childbirth. Um, and like one of the things I say to um, hardcore pro-life Catholics is like, if we can agree that abortion refers to this entity, then wouldn't providing um, public, free, universally accessible pre and postnatal care, pre and post maternal care, maternity leave, like all the things that seem related to the entity that is, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, having a, 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 a pregnancy come yeah, to full term. You're and proposing have, a socialist structure to yes, support. Absolutely. To me, to yeah. That, yeah. And this is what, and, and there are left, um, uh, so like in Spain, for instance, there's this solidarity party that's kind of like in, in, inspired by the Orange Revolution in Central Europe. Um, so, so, they're, so they're left and they're Catholic and they have this, like this one document, I remember reading it and I just laughed. It was, um, rechazamos el aborto porque somos de izquierda. We, we reject abortion because we are of the left and it was this sort of like anti-abortion leftist argument for maximal provision of care and support for mothers and babies and children and families and it was this very kind of like welfare welfare state approach to uh reducing um abortion and to me those are the more um non-ideological real arguments right um unfortunately in the u.s though like i I have a a piece coming out where i talked to a guy with crisis i was like so what are you willing to do if you hate abortion this much you know are you willing to go full full full-blown communism (laughs) like you know do you want to because you'll need a strong you know um and it's funny because whenever i ask them they always pull up short and like whoa 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 like what the hell you know and uh and so to me like being able to sort between, though, the idea of like, well, abortion re- refers to a reality. What can we do about it? Which is a very practical conversation versus the ideological stuff, which is where you get a lot of the melodrama, a lot of the appeals to a kind of, you know. It has its own religiosity. It does. At, at this point yeah, in America. Yeah. And they and they always draw it to analogies to slavery and the Holocaust every time, all the time. Um and so what I found is that I'm actually, and, I, and it makes me feel gross sometimes, but I actually am like, okay, you want to talk about the Shoah? I know a lot about the Shoah. Let's talk about the Shoah. And I'll show them how, because they're speaking ideologically, they don't actually have their facts together. And so, you know, they'll say, well, isn't single issue voting okay if you're against slavery? And it's like, do you realize that the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, but it didn't give them voting rights? It didn't actually enfranchise them nearly as much as you think it did. That was a pretty tragic compromise on the back of a civil war and all the other expenses that came with it. No single, (laughs) no, no single issue voting there, right? For sure. We're seeing the repercussions of that even now. Totally. I mean, Frederick Douglass and every every uh, uh, black intellectual said that they freed us into slavery, you know, and the aftermath of the Reconstruction, you know. Right. Um, Right. So, you know, so my approach 
um, with the ideologically motivated is in fact to not have a serious discussion of the idea of abortion. But I want to give you a source who, if I had, if I had to talk about the idea, I really, I don't want to endorse it, but there's a philosopher named David Benatar. He's from, uh, um, South Africa and he has a book called better never to have been. And the subtitle is the harm of coming into existence. And he has a whole chapter called Abortion, the Pro-Death View. And he actually argues for a pro-death argument in favor of abortion. And it's, an, it's a moral and normative argument, but it's, it's, it's made with reasons and, and, and has a logical apparatus. And it really asks the question, is existence worthwhile unto itself? Which is, I think, a great question to ask, right? Yeah. Now, the Christian tradition... <laughs> says with tons of volume, yes, 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 because of immortality, soul, personhood, all the stuff I said. But there are reasonable responses that do not answer in the affor- affirmative to the question of existence as always being good, all things considered. If someone wanted to really talk about the idea of abortion, I think they would have to be willing to talk about like, is our understanding of life, is this Christian vitalism, is it really it's all, it's all it's cracked up to be? Here, I will defend the Christian view with vigor and, and, and passion, but I don't do it thinking that it's the only view on the table. There are interesting arguments sure. to be had about this, for sure. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you expanding on that. We don't we don't want to harp on the abortion thing for too long. I, know. I think I both was of like, us just I was found like, it. all everyone wants to talk to me about is abortion. I go on a new show, I think we have new conversations. You know, it's all good. Yeah. Oh, I feel oh, that sucks. <laughs> no, it's I, all I good. It's all good. Yeah. We, that wasn't I, my intention. I think uh, Andrew and I were just both pretty fascinated that that debate between you and Carson, it, it felt like eighty to ninety percent of of it came down to that issue of you know you arguing voting for biden over and him arguing the vote for trump so it was just mm-hmm. i think that was that was interesting yeah. to both of us that it really became yeah, about that a lot not a single issue voter no no uh um, yeah. yeah as someone who is pro-life you're like mm-hmm. well i still I, i'm not going to support trump mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah i just well, thought that you would maybe you have an interesting perspective like, on it if i'm in an argument with benatar I'm willing to say I'm going to take the pro-life position against the pro-death position. And he's willing to say I'm taking the pro-death. So there I think pro-life makes sense. It's not ideological. I'm even uncomfortable identifying as pro-life if by that we mean the ideological bumper sticker that certain Catholics and Christians are putting on their vans in order to appeal for right-wing politics. I don't want anything Mm -hmm. to do with that, frankly. But I do accept a, a more idea-based question of i am pro-life in the in the philosophical sense but politically i'm not so sure that i want to be on that camp for sure there's no room for conversation within that camp it seems so um there's mostly no room yeah yeah Yeah. um well shifting gears how how and i'm curious to your thoughts and maybe the importance of a, a figure like Pope Francis, mm. the Franciscan, and what he has uh, done for the movement as far as progress. I mean, recently kind of came out and said that gay marriage is okay and, and celebrated it in some ways mm-hmm. and uh, just appointed the, the first black person, black American, black American as, yeah, yeah. Uh, as archbishop. As cardinal. He's a cardinal. cardinal? Yeah, Gregory. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff. I would say probably um, Fratelli Tutti, which is the encyclical that basically calls out nationalism and populism. It basically comes this short of saying fascism and also comes this short of naming Bolsonaro, Duarte, Trump, Putin, like all the kind of sure. authoritarian leaders. Like he, he's yeah, who are who are all this short of fascism? Like they are really just well, like. Well, I mean, I'm willing a, to put him over the line. Away. Yeah, I mean, yes, in some cases, yeah. well, yeah, Duarte yeah, in particular, sure. he's just capping people yeah, in the streets. Absolutely. Come on, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, there's that encyclical that was promulgated on October 4th. There um, are the comments that came out of the. Uh, documentary that was screened in Italian where his comments on um, civil unions uh, comes up. And then there's the appointment of, of, of Archbishop Gregory, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., who was the outspoken critic of Trump when Trump and Melania went to the National Shrine, um, uh, appointing him uh, as cardinal. And to be honest, within the politics of the church, kind of the insider baseball, kind of snubbing a few people that were probably up for it before he was. So, you know, it was a it was definitely a pointed appointment. Um, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it moved him up in the line. Um, I have to say uh, quickly on Francis. So Francis took on the name Francis, which is itself crazy. No pope has ever done this in the history of the church. And the reason right. why is because St. Francis wasn't even a priest. So like in terms of the cl- the, the, cl- the clericalism of the, po- the papacy, it's like the very top of the hierarchy of the Catholic clergy. You don't get higher yeah, than the Bishop of Rome. Part of it. Whereas Francis was a brother. He was the founder of a great religious order. But unlike almost every other founder, he never sought nor was probably equipped to even be like a deacon or anything. Like he was just a regular guy. And so Francis choosing the name of the like Joseph, Schmo saint of the pantheon of Catholic saints was already in and of itself like a what Francis are you serious yeah. right which is so cool now he's a Jesuit he's not a Franciscan so he was a Jesuit priest and, and archbishop in Buenos Aires in uh, uh, Argentina and um, one thing, though, is that's funny is that it wasn't that big of a surprise. Whenever Ratzinger or, or Benedict XVI was elected, Bergoglio or Francis was actually second on the ballot. So people, Rome insiders knew that Bergoglio was like, you know, a prince of the church about to enter. What I think we didn't know was the degree to which he was going to embrace this kind of Franciscan lowly uh, approach to the papacy, uh, especially whenever Ratzinger or Benedict did also something historic and that he quit. No one had quit the Pope job for 800 years. And this dude just up and quit with zero notice to anyone. It wasn't leaked Mm -hmm. at all. So between Benedict quitting and Francis taking over, it's been a really interesting time in the church. And it's been a time that has been really difficult on Americans especially American right-wing Catholics, because kind of everything they like about Catholicism um, has been uh, eroding, and the message of the church has been more and more a social message, more and more a message that reaches out to the poor and the dispossessed, to the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Um, He seems to be leaning into... The things that Jesus was actually saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to the political structure of of Catholicism. Right. And, and like, I mean, those of us in the U.S. who are excited about Francis, I think a lot of us, though, want to remind people that 
you know, Benedict uh, wrote some stuff. Uh, even though politically he was very conservative, his thought was very, very uh, liberal. In fact, he was a part of the Novo Theologie, the new theology that gave birth to Vatican II in the 1960s. So a lot of this stuff has been kind of gestating and moving. Obviously, the Latin American identity of Francis is a huge deal, not only for historic reasons, but also because of the renewal of Catholicism through kind of this marriage of Marxism and Christianity that happened in Latin America in the 60s and 70s through liberation theology, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Francis is familiar with all this, and he's kind of bringing some of these uh, approaches and ideas to the church. Um, his point on like civ- uh, civil unions was actually kind of a throwaway comment. He supported civil unions all the way back to when he was an archbishop. Now, here's the technicality, and I have sort of two minds on it. On the one hand, a Roman Catholic is willing to say, yes, um, uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, people should have uh, all the rights that straight people and cis people have uh, in, a, in a secular society. That doesn't mean they're saying the sacraments of marriage will be offered freely to LGBTQ people, right? So the hedge on this is that Catholics are comfortable allowing for civil, secular state unions as long as you don't force the church to sacramentally marry people, right? right? And that's kind of where the rub is. It seems fair, uh, you know, that you would, it's like, okay, you, uh, you know, as as a organized religion can say what you want to sanctify, but also you have no right to oppress, you know, these people who who exist in the world and, and like, there's nothing that, that you could possibly do to change them. Yeah. So why not just accept it as it is? Well, the the funny Um, thing is we, and those people mostly, I mean, there are certainly gay and lesbian Catholics and even transgender Catholics who would like to be recognized. Um, but I think that they're, that's a small group. Yeah. I think, I think Um, people who are, um, you know, are, are, um, uh, LGBTQ um, Roman Catholics understand that part of being a Roman Catholic uh, entails a certain degree of acceptance of of the church's teaching uh, on marriage. But at the same time, you have to remember the church with respect to civil unions, if you're married at the courthouse and you're not married in the church, you are not allowed to receive communion in the Catholic church. Like you're pretty excluded. Like we exclude straight people pretty uh, often for civil unions uh, too. And this is, you know, uh, a, a place to show that sometimes I think from the outside looking in, when it seems like the church is putting all its chips on the table, I always say, look at the the side bet they're making. <laughs> and at the same time, whenever it looks like they're withholding something, also look at some of their side bets. And I think that a lot of times you'll see that the, the, the Catholic church oftentimes doesn't always put all their chips on red or on black. They often make a, a number of different bets that they can reconcile sure. as consistent. And also there's a variety of opinion within the church. You know, I mean, we, we, um, we fight with each other all the time, you know, we just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but do you see Catholicism like moving towards something that's more inclusive? I mean, at the again, at the end of the day, like, Reality is what it is. And Catholicism in particular has actually been pretty good historically about shifting with the times, mm-hmm. um, you know, albeit somewhat, you know, usually like um, a little bit late, but but still more than other religious sure, movements sure, or, sure. Or, or religions in general. Yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, the counter-reformation, so <laughs> right, you know, right. we, uh, <laughs> we accepted a lot of the, uh, um, yeah, no, I mean, one of the things about, uh, the Catholic church that I think is, uh, virtuous about it in the secular sense is that we, um, it's impossible to be a, a thinking Catholic and not know that as an institution, your church has just royally fucked up a lot. Uh, and sure. And to, and to know that, like that you have to distinguish the institution from the principles. Um, and, uh, but you have to be willing to historically look, you know, directly into these really humbling moments in the church history. Um, you know, and, and so one of the cool things to me about like the second, the Vatican, second Vatican council is that we, we have shown ourselves better at acknowledging, for instance, the the unique place that anti-Semitism had a stronghold within our our faith, um, which, in particular, after the Second World War, and and alliances like the Vichy French and stuff like that, I think it was long overdue, but it was about time for us to like shut that door really harsh close it, lock it, and say, that's not a door we go into. And to realize that by closing that door, we had to open up another door uh, to Islam and and to realize that there's a kind of an Abrahamic thing going on. And so we have a document called Nostra Ayatate, which um, very boldly proclaims that uh, Jews, Catholic, uh, Jews, Christians, and, 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 uh, and Muslims all worship the same Abrahamic God. Um, which is theologically unthinkable <laughs> in the uh, uh, and it, it, well in most of the church's uh, history, um, but today is uh, is a teaching that we're still I think learning as a church how to how to deal with how to work with, um, and I would say though that this is also a good measure of teaching to certain aspects of other faiths that sometimes don't um, adapt or adjust as well. Um, and learning how to work alongside them. So like we have a really tortured relationship to the Eastern churches, the Orthodox. Um, we sure. kind of mutually kicked each other out of the club in 1054. And we've been trying to make our way back. There's a lot of obstacles there. Some of them are theological, but some of them are like the fact that like the Orthodox have created a fairly ethnic set of churches, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the U right. and, uh, that ethnic thing, that nationalism that's just on the edge of everything, that's not cool. I think we're right to slow play into that relationship. Um, sure. But then, you know, we have our problems, too, so they're being negotiated. But, yeah, I think overall the, the church is headed in a really exciting direction. One thing I would note is that the church isn't always just correcting itself. I think it's also, in many cases, um, contributing greatly to just our common knowledge in the world. Uh, the, for instance, the, the legacy of science, I know everyone thinks of only Galileo, but like Catholic science is a beast. Like we've got the big bang. We've got like pretty much like some major breakthroughs and the natural sciences have come, uh, directly out of, uh, the sciences. One of my favorite stories is that the Vatican had a celebration of 200 years of Darwin since origin of species. Um, or maybe 250 years. Was it? I don't remember exactly. All, the only thing that was funny is they had this uh, celebration uh, in uh, at the Vatican at the uh, um, the, the the Vatican uh, uh, Academy of the Sciences held this conference, mm -hmm. and the Americans <laughs> were like, "Well, we don't like 
Darwin and we want to show up and, and propose creationism. And you know what the Vatican said? They were like, no, um, you're all wrong. <laughs> you don't get to come to a, a scientific conference and literally be stupid. <laughs> like, no, you're not invited, right. you know? And I love that about the church, you know, uh, um, For sure. we've, um, and that's, a, that was to my point of like, you know, Catholicism, I think is especially in America is largely under misunderstood in the sense that, uh, the Catholic Church does its best to try to keep with the times, mm-hmm. and and over the last several hundred years, as things have been changing sure. so rapidly, it has done its best to try to adopt, like, keeping with the times, which is sort of to my point of like, now we're at this point where things are changing so rapidly, sure. and I'm just curious if like you think the Catholic Church is going to be able to keep up with like how quickly our social fabric is evolving now. I mean, to my point, which is a little bit maybe abrasive on that, it's just that the church is changing the times alongside change. It's changing with the times and that this to me isn't necessarily a zero sum game of sort of. And in fact, I I say this to conservatives who think being Catholic is about being against the world and pressing it. No, I am. I think the ebb and flow of the times, there's this really great book by William Kavanaugh, who's one of my favorite theologians, very historical called the myth of religious violence, where he basically blows out of the water. The idea that sort of the times, modern times are, um, exceptional to violence and warfare and also that religion is what created the warfare before and like it's a controversial thesis but in the shadow of the two world wars it's not nearly as in the invention of the atom bomb it's not nearly as controversial that sort of violence and these things aren't just coming out of one particular place within society the secular and the sacred have a lot of blood on their hands uniquely but in terms of progress yeah i think the church is changing but it's also changing the times and i think like francis laudato see his on the on ecology and the environment it was put out just before the expiration of the Paris or the the renewal of the paris accords and it's very empirical he talks about kyoto agreement and he talks about you know uh his background is actually in chemistry so you know um I think I think it's important to see the churches as as flexible and moving, but also to see the fact that the world is also flexible and moving, and the church is doing a lot of its own pushing and pulling there too. And I think some of that is good, some of it isn't, obviously. But you know, it's a mixed sure. bag. Sam, I want to circle back to something you talked about in the beginning of this conversation, and I know that um, being a musician is a big part of who you are and at the beginning of the conversation you said even from a young boy you know you could find scripture in one hand guitar in another Mm. and you you talked about moving around a lot i'm i'm curious how important that guitar was as sort of like a constant and an anchor to you while you were moving around so much and maybe not being able to uh form like any super in-depth friendships with kids since you were moving around so much yeah i mean i've got it always at arm's length you know like i i just <laughs> yeah, there for those is. listening you know I've, I've i've got a one two three four five six seven eight nine i've got nine over here to my left you know <laughs> just a, yeah and a blues junior on the show yeah that's not a blues junior that's a champ that's a tweed champ, oh, it's a champ. yeah it's a 57 reissue nice. uh fender champ um, yeah, no, the guitar is huge for me and it's insightful of you to see the fact that like, because we move so much, um, my kids ask me one of those questions that kind of blows your mind, but they don't know it when they ask like, who is your first friend? I was like, Oh, 
they just, you know, crushed me uh, because, you know, I didn't really have the stability for friends until probably middle school and high school. And even then, you know, I live a long way from home right now. And so, you know, friendships in that sense have been hard. So uh, hopefully one can substitute for those things in one's life. And um, I would say Catholicism has been that for me. I always joke around how like I have no idea where I should be buried, but I know exactly what kind of funeral I should have. So it's kind of like, I don't know where I belong geographically, even sometimes ethnically. I'm like a Mexican American living in Canada. Like it's super confusing. Um, but my, my, my faith, I know what the ritual is. I, I've, I've, you know, and, and the guitar has been, I would say as constant as scripture, as tradition, as the church has been for me. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, like, um, for, for me at least, a lot of the philosophy I work with or a lot of my claims as a philosopher are really, you could read them as me trying to make sense of my practice as, as a recording artist, as a musician, as a guitar player. So like one of my main claims in, in, in my work is uh, this simple three word sentence, kind of aphoristic, but it says art precedes metaphysics. So traditionally, philosophy says we start with first things, and first things is are the question of being. Do things exist or not? Why do they exist? Is there something instead of nothing? That's metaphysics, right? Those are the kind of our first questions. Mm -hmm. And my 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 intuition has always been to say no. Before the firstness of metaphysics, there is this impulse towards it that art shows and that art kind of brings and even anthropologically before Plato and Aristotle and the great pre-Socratics and the great thinkers and wisdom traditions before Gilgamesh you have the relation of the hand to the rock or to the stick or to, 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 to poesis called making in Greek just to make to me that poetic impulse to make is, is what art is and my claim and my work as a philosopher is to argue for a priority of art over, in a sense of being prior to metaphysics. And this might sound like super theoretical, but in my own life, it's biographical. Before I was really able to appreciate letters and reading and books and study and stuff, you know, I started hacking away at my guitar when I was five. You know, mm -hmm. and so I, oh, and the other thing is I've never, cause I moved and we were also poor. So I never had money for lessons. So I was always just kind of picking up stuff in church and just practicing and being really bad. Like I was way bad. I w I'm, I'm, I've been playing now for 30, 33 years. And I sound like a really good 25 year old guitarist. <laughs> like I do not, I like, I, I, when I see some of these cats out there who are just, you know, coming out of Berkeley and UNT and, and just, you know, unbelievable. Um, it's inspiring and it's great, but I know that my road has been really long and really slow. Um, but I have a kind of, um, a series of intuitions in my fingers and in my flesh in relation to, to the wood and metal of these sure. that I, that is not really intellectual and it's super cool to be an untrained, 
a, a illiterate musician on the one hand and to be an academic philosopher on the other hand and to yeah. be like an academic by day and a blind musician by night, you know? Um, well, so I'm really curious about that specific relationship. Um, I read your bio on your website and you mentioned that you, you don't read music. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's correct. Yeah. Right. So, so you're talking about, yeah, being like sort of a, bl- a, a blind guitarist mm-hmm. on one side and obviously yeah, an, an academic philosopher, um, have you ever read the book Siddhartha by, by Herman Hesse? No. You haven't, uh-uh. or you should. Um, I think you'd really enjoy it. But sort of the, one of the final acts of that book is, is uh, the main character meeting this essentially enlightened being who has just been a ferryman for his whole <sighs> life. And, he, and he, the ferryman says, like, you know, he's a completely uneducated person Mm -hmm. who's just been running a ferry across a river his whole life Hmm. and he was like well the river has everything it can teach me everything i need to know about life yeah and siddharth and and the main character sort of having gone through this massive journey this massive spiritual journey realizes like wow there is something in in the unknowing of things Mm -hmm. um and i think that as someone who has been on both sides, uh, I, I'm also a musician, mm-hmm. and I really didn't start studying music until I went to college. Mm-hmm. But I started writing music when I was like ten, right. um, and I'd been playing guitar since I was five. Yeah. So like, you know, a long time of me just sort of like messing around on the guitar, trying to figure stuff out, and like it was such a, it was beautiful mm-hmm. to just like create my own chords and like. There was no, there was no name for anything. Yeah. It just was, you know, it just was what it was. It was pure feeling. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think I lost a lot of that once I started studying it mm. and I learned advanced music theory and I learned all of these things about songwriting and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'm, I'm curious with, uh, specifically like the, like that notion of, um, pure feeling as it relates to like creating and writing and playing music like how that can relate to spirituality because i think a lot of times like especially people who are intellectual they intellectualize spirituality to a point where they just end up like pigeonholing themselves somewhere or they get lost in it somewhere and ultimately it comes back to this pure feeling and being that needs to be rediscovered. Absolutely. Um, and e- even, you know, Jesus talks about this in the Bible of like, you know, faith like a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just was curious, like your take on that, like as, as specifically because you are such like an accomplished musician who also isn't like uh, a nerd musician in the sense that you don't like, you're not studying jazz theory right, like, right. down to the T. Um, I'm just curious, like, if you have any comments around kind of that concept of, like, a loose spirituality that's not focused on on so much intellectualism, sure. but just focused on pure feeling yeah. and being. Yeah, I mean, so, like, I, I had my, um, 
my kind of Mexican traditions. So like I just learned the other day, I was watching a country, a guy I really like, he's a country player, um, talking about his plan, um, trying to remember his name, Red, Red, uh, what's Red's, uh, R-E-D-D. Of course his name is Red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he, <laughs> it's all we he's need He's from know. Vancouver and he's he went to Nashville, now he's in Austin. Uh, and he was talking about double stops, which I've heard like guitar players talk about double stops a lot, but to be honest, I never quite stopped to ask what the hell that meant. And Whenever he explained it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I play double stops constantly. And, and, right. and Mexican... Yeah, you just didn't have a name for I it. I didn't know what the name was. And Mexican guitar playing, a lot of times there's a part that's called the requinto, which sometimes is actually played on a smaller guitar, higher pitched, that mm-hmm. that outlines usually like the tag of the chorus that is used as the intro. Um, and so one guitar plays the chords and the requinto plays the requintiada, which, and I always thought the requinto was like the most badass part of like, you know, a conjunto set of players. So, you know, I, I've been playing requintos like forever, right? You know, that was to me, that was like how I showed my dad that I was like pretty good at guitar was whenever I showed him I could pull off a real killer requinto, you know? Um, and you can inflect those and stuff. And, and it's kind of like the single note playing within like traditional conjunto mariachi and Mexican music in a lot of cases. The reason I say that is it's all double stops uh, with a, a simple kind of interval. And I just I had I had a kind of Spanish and Mexican folklore around it that then I heard from country. But of course, I mean, I'm 38. I I. I, I I've translated the Mexican requinto into all kinds of inversions and stuff like that, and you know octaves sure. and so on and so forth. But what what was um, what I'm going to come back to again, and you you might hate how repetitive this is, is that to me uh, what I I came up through like having that that core of Mexican music that I think just bleeds out of everything I play. It just kind of everything kind of sounds a little bit Mexican, um, and then I had the contemporary Christian music, the kind of more Anglo, folky, singer-songwriter, strum uh, thing, to cowboy chords and that kind of a thing, you know, the open E progression, that kind of stuff. But then in college, uh, but then I started playing in bars and started realizing that so many covers of, of American pop, and I was one of those kids who never played or listened to secular music till I was like 17. So coming into the American songbook and top 40 music at 17 and trying to catch up fast, I quickly realized that like the blues was a must uh, thing. And I love the blues because it was pretty good for an uneducated person. You just, you know, I, I, I intuitively knew one, four yeah. and five and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all that to say that I eventually found myself playing in a neo-soul uh, new jazz band called Groovement. And we were primarily playing uh, jazz kind of supper clubs and then the, the Chitlin Circuit on the east side of Columbus, uh, black side of town in, in Dayton and other places. And playing neo-soul, Erica Badu, Jill Scott, D'Angelo, Tank, Dwelle, oh, yeah. you know... Um, Sade, you know, that's about as mainstream as we got was like Sade, uh, smooth operator or something. Well, that, that forced me to not only learn jazz, not only become a hip hop head and really pay attention to that kind of, um, dragged out behind the one feel of a kind of Jay Dilla DJ. Yeah. That day, that that Dilla groove. Right. And so like, you know, and then that, that, but that huge backbeat, you know, that you get from, from from everyone from Amir to Steve Jordan's work at John Mayer, but that kind of signature, right? And so for me, like that was a real moment because all of a sudden my Mexican sensibilities, some of my Latin claves sitting over that hard African one with that Dilla backbeat, like there was just a lot of sauce to get into. But the thing that I came out with more than all the kind of syncopation and rhythmic stuff was soul. 
Like, I learned that when I was myself as a Mexican playing in a black club to, uh, let's say, um, Floetry's, you know, just say yes or something like that, that if I was just mm-hmm. honest and really allowed myself to be a little bit vulnerable as a guitar player and really bare my soul a little bit and, and, and put myself out there, the the return on that investment was so incredible and then i started playing a little bit in the black church and and i started to in some sense rediscover pentecostalism but through this sense of soul and soul music but also a, a, an idea of how to express your heart and how to share yourself with other people and i think it infected everything i do to my teaching to my rhetoric to all these kinds of things and as a songwriter, I became a lot simpler and I was already pretty simple. Cause like, I, I you know, I can't read or write or so I, I'm pretty much stupid, but like, even now it's like I, some people complain about three chord songs. I'm trying to write a two chord song or a one chord song. Like, you know, I'm like <laughs> a one chord yeah, song, man, man, a one note song. I played, I played in a band with this girl who she had this incredible one chord song. Yeah. It was just E major all the way through. It's my favorite song that she yeah. has. And it's fucking amazing, yeah. but like you said, it's because it's imbued with so much soul and feeling, um, and I guess like what I'm interested in is like, how do we apply that to spirituality in terms of like, how do we approach life in a way where obviously most of us are, um, or a lot of us, we're not spiritually illiterate, right? right? So we know something. But how do we get back to the roots of just, like you're saying, like finding a way to just bear our soul in like a pure way? Um, you know, I see a lot of this in kind of the sort of the question of sincerity and that whole movement of like the new sincerity, you know, Dave, Barry, David Foster Wallace, whatever. But like there's an artist, Daniel Johnson. I don't know if you guys are hip to him, but like. Yeah. Like that dude, he was the sincerity movement in Austin and his song, True Love Will Find You in the End. I mean, uh, yeah, so it's an all time. Yeah, that's that is that song. is sincerity right there, you know, and the fact that he wrote that when he's 19 and then whenever he's 55 with the shakes from, you know, all his problems, he's still singing to himself, the 19 year old. And it's not coming true, but he's still saying it. It's just like, you know, to me, there is um, a spiritual depth to um, to love that that music in particular knows in bunches that that is the prime material to talk about and i actually think that as much as um our society may seem to be stuck in sort of the cliches of love and sincerity and stuff like that one of the things that actually is probably cool about christianity is that we're not really allowed to be that bashful about talking about love a lot, you know? Um, and now we don't always live it and it's not always like, it doesn't always work and stuff like that. But I think that like the relationship between love and soul is, and, and the ability to like openly make talk about it. And like, so so like I teach a lot of times uh, student teachers, people who are studying to become teachers and I'll ask them a question like, very kind of youth groupy kind of question, like, what are the desires of your heart? Like, what are the things, not just that you want, but the things that you don't want, that you want to want? 
Listen, I grew up in a youth group. No one ever asked me that. So, <laughs> I mean, it sounds so very campy, right? Like, yeah, you know, no, but it's it's good. It's a deep question. Yeah. And and whenever you ask people who are there because they say they want to do something, I want to be a teacher, and you say, "What are the desires of your heart?" and they're like. I never wanted this. This is just what I'm doing to get it. And, and it's like, that's fine. You don't have to leave. It's it, There's nothing wrong with just picking up your paycheck. But don't pretend that you truly are called to be. No, you're obviously not. You're like me. I wanted to be a musician and I failed and now I'm a professor and that's just the way life is and who cares. But I don't have to lie about it. Like I don't have to pretend that I wouldn't rather be playing right, guitar but all the time. Ultimately, you wanted to, you got to get to the thing behind the thing behind the yeah. thing. Right. So even you wanting to be a musician, you wanted to share a, you wanted to share a feeling with, with people. You wanted to share an experience with someone. Well, maybe you can still accomplish the same thing as a professor. And I think that that's like rewriting the narrative for people of like, yeah, you have this, especially in America where it's like, you have this dream of like, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I want to be. This is my dream. And it's like, how can we distill that down into its most basic form of like, ultimately, you just want to serve people. Right. So if that means that you're serving people by working a butcher counter, Mm -hmm. you're still serving people. Yeah. And that's what that's your heart's deepest desire. Sure. So then you can now you can be comfortable in that and not have the story of I'm a failure because I work as a butcher. You can say, no, I'm successful because I'm serving people every day. In what they need. And I can, and I, and I think you can also fall in love, like learn to fall in love with being a butcher. Right. And like, you know, I, I, sometimes I talk down my day job because of my hangups of the fact that, you know, um, maybe if I would have gone to Berkeley, got my chops together, I would be on, you know, but you know what? I talked to, I talked to friends who are, who are with COVID or sitting in their, uh, you know, uh, apartments in Nashville, New York and LA who are like, Sam, you did it the right way, man. You've got the day job. You're not chasing, uh, the paycheck and and you're putting out material and you're writing and you got your little trio and, you know, don't feel bad about it. You know, well, you know, it's an exchange rate and, and it moves in every direction. But I think that like what I've learned from music, uh, is, was probably more important ultimately for my life than, than necessarily what what I learned from religion, which is that I learned that like you can be religious in a way of soul and in a way of of kind of uh, promoting a kind of love that whenever you get into music, I mean, you realize there's it's no coincidence that if you're playing within the kind of black American canon of music that you have to be super churchy. Like churchiness is a thing. I'm sorry. You can't sound soulful if you're not churchy. Like you've got to have, you know, the ability to vamp on something in a really kind of churchy way. You've got to have an ability to kind of go off on a run. That's kind of Mahalia Jackson or something. And like, you know, and if you don't have that, well, you kind of suck. Like you're not really like, that's not the, you don't have the mode of expression to get that out of yourself. And so for me realizing that like the churchiness of the club on Saturday night was really important and that there was a religious sense, you know, to playing, how does it feel? Um, that wasn't about sustain and about gear and about whatever, you know, was going right or wrong. No, but it's about, but there's this huge parallel between both, right? Which is like an earnest religious person and an earnest soulful Mm -hmm. musician. And that's embodied. Totally. How do they embody 
those ideals and someone who's truly embodied in it will get up on the stage whether they're preaching or they're singing or playing the guitar and if you're in the audience and they're embodying it then you fucking feel it exactly you feel it i have learned though that there's some people who feel it and some people who have not yet tapped into the side of themselves that allows them to feel it. Like I, I, uh, I went to yeah. a show here. I went and saw Tedeschi and trucks. Uh, cause I think Derek trucks is oh, crazy yeah. good. You know, I, I, he's one yeah, of the I, best, maybe the best like guitar player. Yeah, of all time. No, I'd say maybe Joey Landreth right now. I like a little bit better, but like, you know, to me, you know, and Joey Landreth is a Derek trucks devotee, right? It's from almond to trucks right. to probably Landreth and right. Exactly. You know, um, right. Cooter. But, but anyway, we don't want to get into slide guitar talk, but the, the, the point I'm making is that like, <laughs> I went to this show and I'm in Canada. It's a pretty, you know, Vancouver is a pretty polite, gentrified, um, white Asian, primarily cultural fusion. And, you know, Tedeschi Trucks was laying down, you know, songs of the South in that place, and they were just putting it out there, and everyone was sitting down <laughs> with their hands <laughs> in their lap, enjoying themselves, but it really put me off, because I was like, you know, this is really messed up. You guys are freaking dead fish over here, and these guys are like... Pouring out their soul to us. Yeah, bearing their yeah, soul. Yeah, yeah. And I ran into to some colleagues afterwards, and they're like, what do you think? And I looked at them disgusted. I was like, y'all need to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what you, you were you were going there for church. church and that communal was, experience, yeah, exactly, right? exactly, exactly. Because there's, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing better than than that communal experience that, that you you know, experience as an audience member when it's right or as, as the player. Mm-hmm themselves you know that's just like the undeniable connection to spirituality when when everybody's tapped in and feeling that totally and, and you know i think the ability to experience that in a variety of things so like i obviously have a real like hardcore thing to the american songbook and to groove and stuff but you know learning to find that in brian eno learning to find that in daniel lanois learning to find that and like i've never been a rocker like so like learning to find that in different expressions and different modes realizing that the one and the three and the two and the four are not a sacred rule in fact but that there's indian music for instance that actually claps on one and three and it's cool and it grooves like crazy and there's nothing wrong with it right you know tabla you know moving universalizing this more and more out of a provincial expression, but having that as an anchor, I think is really important. And so like, I think that part of the spirituality isn't just self-enclosing ourselves in this ability to feel good, but then the moment we have it and we know we have it, being willing to leave it behind and move out and find the things that contradict it and not feel like they take anything away from us, but that they enrich us and they, and they make us bigger. For sure. I mean, that's the, you know, the individual spiritual journey in itself too. It's just like realizing that everybody taps in to a different Mm -hmm. thing and it's not always the same thing that, you know, it's not always the soul music that makes somebody feel that way. It's sometimes it is that, that heavy hardcore music or, you know, the punk rock, whatever. I don't know if y'all have heard of like, uh, checked out Mary Halverson at all. Um, 
So, so the way familiar. I got into jazz, really weird way to get into jazz. It was not through Miles and the Bop and stuff. I was going down to a basement in St. Paul, Minnesota, the Artist Quarter, and listening to these uh, free, Minneapolis free jazz groups that were run by Dave King, the drummer in the Bad Plus. And so we had Happy Apple, Shovel, the Dave King Trucking Company, and they were like on the edge of like music and noise. Um, and it was jazz. It was it was avant-garde, free jazz right there on the edge. And, you know, one of their groups had Michael Lewis. And as a saxophone player, Lewis could go free. And then he could just go into the most classical rendition of any standard with the most beautiful ballad kind of tone and stuff. And so sometimes they would save you with that. But, like, there were a lot of times I was sitting there looking at my kind of box of cigarettes of, like, you know, do I want a cigarette more than I want to sit here and wonder what the hell's going on? <laughs> like, you know, and and mm -hmm. and. And that was really good for me because then I eventually ended up coming into jazz and, and learning like the kind of the more kind of standard stuff. And, and that's but all I'm trying to say is that, like, for me, I went to go see Mary Halverson and a midnight show here at the Ironworks. And she's a guitarist who definitely flirts on the edge of like music and noise and really exploring, you might say, that line and where it is. And um, I walked into the show and there's about 100 of us there. And, you know, a small room. And there was about 25 at the end of the set. <laughs> like, it, yeah. <laughs> Just wow. cleared a room. She cleared the room. There were people who were like, oh, hell no. And then she really, I mean, she went over the edge. It was, it was ridiculous. I don't even want to say I loved it or liked it. It was an experience, right? Yeah. But as an artist and as knowing a little bit about her and like just... <sighs> It just took so much for her, I think, to do that. And like, she clearly does this all the time. And as a performer, it's like, I don't know if I could go play and clear out rooms like this and have enough balls and, and integrity and, and soul, right? To keep believing in it and to doing do it, it again, again. Yeah. night after night <laughs> or even within the same set well yeah of course to just say like i'm gonna keep yeah, going exactly yeah. and so you know there's something about that tenacity and and the and the ability to do that that to me is also like uh important for me to see as a part of this growing vocabulary of soul that i'd never want to relax into my Mexican identity, which is always on the ready. And I have it, you know, you know, running in my veins or, you know, the American songbook or what I know from, you know, uh, black music or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And, and it's not about being eclectic and being well-rounded in a sort of technical sense. I'm very limited actually. Um, but it's about being able to carry that around. William James, one of my favorite philosophers says that teachers should never prepare to teach but they should always carry their knowledge on tap. And so they should always be able to mm -hmm. pour. And so I think about a lot of this through the metaphor of like headroom. Like the, you know, I think everyone should have, you know, at least a hundred watts, you know, and never need all 100 and be able to play, you know, just at, you know, just, just tiny club right. volume. But when you get, when you get the call <laughs> and you got to turn up to yeah, 11. Exactly. Then you're oh, fucking yeah, ready. Exactly. You're yeah. ready. I'll never forget. I was playing. I, I was invited to uh, the worship center of Central Ohio. Is this black church on the east side? My drummer played there, and um, I was Catholic, so I'd never experienced a uh, Pentecostal black holiness service before. Um, sure. And so 
very different totally different vibe who doesn't know what those things yeah. are they could not be no, more they're different. super different liturgy is straight and planned and you fit in and you don't stick out you complement the liturgy you never stand out all of a sudden we're playing and pastor carter's says sam would you bless us and i was like i'm not a priest i can't bless like like Right. And like, I know. Mean? And I turn and I don't have holy water in exactly, my pocket. Right. <laughs> and so Dre, Dre, the drummer was behind like some plexiglass and he threw the plexiglass on it. He goes, Sam, you better play like, like you better like, and I remember starting and people being like, come on, come on. And there was a point in the solo where I was like, it looks like it's going here. And I just reached around and I had some chicken head uh, uh, volume knobs on, an, on a deluxe. And I just went through, took my hand and went, just, just dimed the whole thing, you know. <laughs> and it was great. Like, it worked, you know. But uh, uh, I'm, I was lucky, actually, that, uh, that, I was a, that the room wasn't any bigger than that. Otherwise, I would have been out sure. of shape. But yeah. Yeah, I think everyone. I think I, I like to think of like the soul in an, as an almost capacity, and and of soul as as an ability, you know, to um, sometimes communicate soul by restraint. Um, like one of the things I love to do in a blues solo is is if I really warm up for that climax to actually kill the dynamics right at the at the point where you're just going to blow up that bend on the high, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. to just kill it and just break it down and build it back up again, kind of this tantric sort of thing, you know. Um, sure. And for people who know what the solo is supposed to sound like, it can piss off some people, but there's other people who are like, that was good. You, you changed it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. Your own interpretation well, of the yeah. thing. And life is like that sometimes where you're expecting uh, you're expecting some big, like, monumental thing that, that the world has told you it's going to be this way, it's going to build in this way, and then all of a sudden COVID yeah. hits. Yeah, yeah. And you're <laughs> stuck inside and you're like, fuck. Yeah. I wasn't expecting this low moment in the solo. Yeah. I thought that, I thought we were going to be screeching at this point. Oh, yeah. Um. And so I think that art, yeah, art can can reflect life in that way, and and beautifully so. Um, yeah, I think it's so I think it's so wonderful to uh, whether it's a full song or, or a solo or whatever to take people on mm-hmm. a journey where you catch them off guard with yeah. something because life is going to catch you off guard with stuff all of the time. And like you said, it's gonna be it's like how are you pre- you need to be prepared for it. Yeah. You never know when those things are going to happen. Right, right. And so, like, do you have the capacity? Do you have the capacity to crank it up when life gets super quiet? Right. Like, do you have the capacity to roll with the punches? Um, and, and ultimately, like, building a spiritual practice. Totally. Is, it comes down to a lot Absolutely. of that. And I know? think that, like, in the kind of world historical context of, like, the human condition, to put it in very kind of lofty terms... Religion and spiritual traditions in their best moments to me are just wattage that's added to, to, to the amplifier of human expression and the human condition. And so to me, like, you know, um, like Hinduism for me is a super interesting tradition because I find them to be a really wildly uh, 
really high headroom in that religion. Uh, one of the stories I love is how the Jesuits came to, 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 to a group of Hindus. And um, now they weren't all peaceful, but this group was. Um, and told them about Jesus and told them the stories of the Gospels and, and how he healed the sick and how he fed the hungry. And that they were crying whenever they heard about him dying and his resurrection and, and how they all said, and they said, do you want to give your life to Jesus? Yes, we love Jesus. And they were like, go home. And they're like, man, that went really well. We gave away all these crucifixes. They all love Jesus. Yeah. They come back the next day and the crucifix is up next to all the other gods. Right. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you, and they're like, we do love Jesus. Jesus is amazing. He reminds us, in fact, of Krishna and of, you know, and it was just like, what? <laughs> like, you know, I, I love that story, yeah. actually, um, because I actually think that's a challenge for my Catholicism. I mean, if I'm the universal guy, right, how do you out-universalize that, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> right. Yeah, their capacity to just be like, yeah, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. He was, yeah, his message was fantastic. And also, so is the, you know, the thing, the heritage that I grew yeah, up yeah. with. Yeah, and, yeah. And, like, and but I'm open to accepting sure. all of it. Like, I just want, I want anything that points towards uh, loving and compassion. Holiness, goodness, yeah. And I think, though, that one yeah. of the things that gives them that capacity is the antiquity of Sanskrit and the Bhaktivedanta Gita and the Vedas and the... Um, and the fact that they have a tradition that that is second in antiquity to no one, really. And so they don't have. And so one of the things I think is funny about American religious conflict is that sometimes you have these confrontations of X that was invented 45 years ago and Y that is really old and the Y doesn't have any respect for this and that, but they don't have respect. For, and it kind of creates these like, you know, but one of the things I love is to see whenever, um, believers are very, are, are, are comfortable in their own skin. And it doesn't always come from historical time or age. Like I've had wonderful interactions in like the black church, for instance, you know, um, and, uh, the black Protestant church There's also black Catholics, by the way, tons of them. And it's, and that's awesome. Sure. Uh, like Gregory, sure. the Cardinal, <laughs> we can get to, you know, yeah, right, right, um, yeah, yeah. but, but, you know, to me, those are like, those are really exciting moments where you can kind of see not to be too romantic about it, but you can kind of see like, what's so cool about the, about being human. And, and I know that a lot of people's relationship to religion is very negative or very much affiliated with the worst part of humanity. And that's definitely part of the story too. But for me, like one of the cool things about tradition and religion and spiritual practices that kind of boil over time and get into these really thick stews and gravies that we're, that we're always eating at is, is the capacity to then meet each other with nothing to lose. And like, you know, um, I teach students who are very self-secure in their Muslim identity, for instance, and we can sit and make jokes even across our religions. You know, one of my Muslim students once mm -hmm. said, she said, I've always wanted to be buried in a Christian cemetery. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And she's like, well, for Islam, we all believe in resurrection on the last day. 
but you all get buried with clothes and we don't. So I want to be buried with Christian so I can borrow a shirt. <laughs> you know, that's, that's awesome, like wow. that joke doesn't happen <laughs> in a, in an environment that isn't sufficiently relaxed, but also sufficiently religiously literate, you could say to have that beautiful interaction, you know, and, and yeah, that kind absolutely. of stuff for me is always yeah. really that's how soul for me expresses itself. And then when you look at this in music, oh my gosh, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah, man. I, I mean, I think that's why Andrew and I are here doing this thing. Like just looking for say, those beautiful interactions. That's and what just we're trying to cultivate. Trying to gain more understanding for where people come from and whether they still align with their the religions that they grew up with or they don't and understanding what their spiritual practices are now. And... Uh, it's been so cool, man, to just find out how how much music is tied to your spirituality, oh, yeah. it seems. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. Uh, dude, we can't thank you enough for, like, lending us so much of your time oh, thanks for putting just, up with and, me. And, and <laughs> talking with us. And, like, I know, it's I, been an absolute pleasure. You you are definitely welcome to come chat with Sweet. us anytime. I'm sure we could all talk about music yeah, forever. Awesome. We could do an entire podcast just I about music. I would love that, and, yeah. Um, yeah, man. Uh, is there? We'll we'll put all the links in the episode sure. notes, and we definitely want to play it out with a, a tune cool, of yours. Cool. Because you got a lot of music available. But is there anything else that you would like to promote before we close things you out? You know, I, I'm I'm really blessed to have a a, a good day job, um, and so I uh, one of the reasons I actually don't do a Patreon or anything like that is because. Um, uh, I don't want to crowd the space for the people who, 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 who rely on it and need it. So my Patreon is called buy my shit. It's uh, www <laughs> I've got my books. I've got my albums. I've got some free links and cool. stuff. I've got the sites to, you know, the Spotify, the Bandcamp, all that stuff. So yeah, just check it out and enjoy it. And I've got an EP coming out with my trio. We're going to do our first cut, co- my first cover project ever. One of them is going to be the Daniel Johnson song. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then looking yeah. forward yeah. to that. Man. And then I'm working on a new eponymous album, which will be my very first kind of self name titled uh, piece of work. So yeah, just you know, in the factory awesome. doing the work. Is there a particular tune you'd like us to to play the episode out with? Yeah, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you um, a rough cut of uh, a song called Avila, which is based on uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, a saint and doctor of the church in Catholicism. And it's a bookmark she had stuck in her diary where she wrote a poem. Uh, and the poem doesn't really have a title, but the poem says, Nada te turbe, nada te espanta. Let nothing trouble you, let nothing frighten you. And it, it's just a few stanzas. And so I kind of interpreted that through at least in my mind, an allusion to, I've always felt like Bob Marley's um, Waiting in Vain has is like the most underrated song on Legend. Um, and I love that interval from the C to the F. And so I, uh, I, use, I use basically the Waiting in Vain change with an added kind of descending part into the, the lower octave of F to kind of make it a nice four part structure with the stanzas and then a tag at the end. So I'll send you a, a wave file of just a rough cut that I have that I just cut off the floor so and uh, awesome. put it out there. And hopefully people keep their heads out for, uh, for that project when it comes out. Hell yeah, yeah. Man. We'll put the links in the episode notes and yeah, we appreciate the hell out of you for, for taking the time and hanging yeah, out with us. Thank tonight. you. I'm awesome. going to press the red button now. Cool, man.
All right. <laughs> Dude. Sam Rocha on the podcast. Yeah, it was great. That was one of my favorites for sure, without a doubt. What a what a nice, cool Just fucking a dude. Good dude. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chat. That exceeded my expectations. Hell yeah. And uh way to go. Way to bring up the abortion thing. I did I hope it. you're proud of yourself. <laughs> I know. I wanted to, and then as soon as he said, you know, everyone just always wants to talk to me about abortion, I was like, God fucking damn it. I mean, I thought it was cool though, and hopefully, you know, shed, yeah, shed a different it. perspective. I tried to do it in a respectful way. You yeah. know, I wasn't trying to come at him. I just was genuinely curious, like As am I. How do we how do we talk about this really? Uh, as someone who yeah, is very much for women's rights and and uh pro-choice it seems very difficult to have a a measured conversation with someone who is on the other side of that so but that was that that wasn't that was a measured conversation yeah that was very that was very cool and it was cool that we got to geek out about music so much with him and uh definitely check out everything sam is doing like he said he's got a bunch of books and he's got Tons of music to check out. All the links will be in the episode notes, including our email. So maybe, you know, somebody send us an email. BibleBudsPDX at gmail.com. And uh, we're going to play it out with that uh, that rough cut of Avila, I believe the tune is called, from yep. Sam Rocha. Yeah. And um, you go out there and you smoke, pray, love, and you don't be a racist. And this is the last time we get to say this. Make sure that you vote. You got a couple of days before this this right. wild election is coming up. So uh, yeah, and after you vote, you go ahead and you bless up. Yes, please bless up. Nada te turbe Nada te espanta Todo se pasa Dios No se muda Y la paciencia Todo lo alcanza Quien a Dios tiene Nada le falta
nada te turbe, no, nada te espanta. Todo se pasa, Dios no se muda y la paciencia todo lo alcanza. Quien a Dios tiene. Nada le falta Solo Dios Basta Solo Dios basta, solo Dios.